It takes one revolutionary to know another. And we're talking with filmmaker Adam McKay and his editor, Hank Corwin, about Netflix's Don't Look Up. So you had mentioned this project was with you, if I remember correctly, for a while. And it was about the discrepancy between science and what those in charge want us to know. It was conceived before the pandemic, but the pandemic just took it to a whole other level. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, I, I basically was searching for a way to tell the story of our, you know, shocking inaction over climate. And for some reason, the inability for climate to like penetrate our culture, when it's obviously this massive, massive thing we've got to deal with that's, that's happening faster and faster. And so we had this idea, and then I had to go into doing the pilot for Winning Time, our Lakers show with Hank. And so I had written a rough outline of Don't Look Up, and then we did the pilot for Lakers, and I just had this strange kind of sense of urgency where I was like, I got to write this script. I went and wrote it and we set it up pretty quickly and we were scouting in Boston and then the pandemic hit. And yeah, Hank and I talked about it while it was happening. It was one of the strangest things I've ever seen because half the script came true in front of us um, all the way down to the COVID denial, the, you know, denying the science, um, you know, it was all politicized, prophetized, confused, red and blue split. Um, very, very bizarre. Even the satirical element that you wrote kept, kept losing its teeth because things kept coming true. You know, so you were pushing the satire more and more. Yeah, I had to do a whole rewrite where I made certain things crazier. I took out certain things that had happened word for word because it just felt like we were pulling them from the headlines. So I had to do a whole rehab of the script when we went to shoot it. But I think as a result, what ended up happening was this interesting in-between place where it's a lot like reality, but then parts of it are absurd. And, it, and, and, and certainly people connect with it in a big, big way. So, um, yeah, I can't imagine. It would have been like, you know, I'm trying to think of a comparison. It would have been like if, if you know, Dr. Strangelove was written and then, you know, Curtis LeMay actually took over the war room and was going to launch nukes. And then uh, Johnny Cash wrote an atomic bomb. <laughs> like, I mean, that's how true a lot of it came. I mean, the, the COVID denial was the stuff that really just was like, wow, I didn't think it would happen like that. Yeah, I mean, you've been accused of being a futurist. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, how, how did you come to know Hank? Because what I find very interesting is Hank is edited on Terrence Malick movies, Tree of Life and New World. And, you know, Malick is known as a guy who finds the movie in the editing room. He loves improv. He's a guy that rips up his shot list and says, hey, let's just chase after the butterfly today. You're a guy, Adam, that loves improv. <laughs> and here you've got a guy that knows how to adapt 
that's a specific type of filmmaking. People don't realize this, I think, because when you're improvising on film or improvising greatly, there's a whole thing with the script supervisor I know and, and matching shots and, and, and recording certain shots so you know what you have. Um, that's my big question for, tell me about how you got together with Hank and kick off your process of working on improv together. It was, it was a, a, a little bit of an, a, a happy accident and also just a, a, a great circumstantial uh, uh, blessing because I was doing the big short and it was a very different shooting style than what I had done before. I was working with Barry Aykroyd and, and really knew what I wanted as far as that I was going to blend some traditional filmmaking, traditional proscenium, Dolly stuff with the Aykroyd Neo Verite style. And it was really difficult. So we were struggling with it. And uh, Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner from Plan B, I said to him, I go, I think we need to go in a different direction with the editing on this. And they said, you know, we're in the middle of shooting the big short. And they said, there's this really amazing editor we've worked with and there's kind of no one like him. And his name's Hank Corwin. And I immediately went and of course, right away knew a bunch of films that Hank had cut. He also worked with Oliver Stone on some pretty legendary movies. And I knew I had seen Tree of Life. I loved Malik, so I knew all about that. And I was like, yeah, I think this is our guy. We need someone who can really go out there. And right away, the great delight of working with Hank was how much more he was bringing me than I was used to. Because, uh, you know, editors add a lot. They do a lot. Editors are gold. They're the best. But Hank was taking these bold leaps with the movie. Uh, for instance, like cutting the ludicrous video into Big Short. Well, I've never seen an editor take that bold a leap. And that's exactly how I like to work. I like people to initiate. I like people to make bold choices. And my refrain, I always say is like, well, worst case scenario, you don't use it. But, but the goal that I was right away getting out of Hank with his unusual editing style and moves that I'd never seen before as far as timing and cut patterns. And, and the big thing I noticed right away is a lot of it's funny. I mean, Hank has this playful style. It's very artistic. It's very beautiful. It's very poetic but it's also quite funny. And Hank was generating laughs out of the big short. I mean, obviously I had a lot of stuff scripted, we improvised it, but he was discovering funny, playful moves um, that I, quite frankly, I'd just never seen before. And I, I'll not, the story I always tell is, first time I went to the edit room to look at the rough cuts for a bunch of runs in the movies, I was leaving with my associate producer, Robin Willie, and I literally skipped to the parking lot. I was like, <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, I was like, oh, we found an editor. Uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. You know, what's lovely is uh, Adam, Adam allowed me to have a second act as, uh, as a, a Leslie Nielsen of editors. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hank, how does it work? I mean, you've got the script. That's your map. But I got to imagine coming off of the assembly line here from Adam, is all this great stuff, Jonah Hill and Jennifer Lawrence kind of sniping at each other, you know, for 
for 10 minutes. And how do you find, how do you build in those extra moments? There's no simple, there's no simple, easy answer. There's just a lot of work. I really, I, I really get to know the footage. And the one thing that Adam gives me that's a blessing is the ability and the go ahead to, to actually try anything I want. You know, I, I actually, for a while, I feel like I'm in charge until he, until he takes it away from me. <laughs> no, but it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I mean, I could, you know, it's hard as an editor to talk about process. I guess it's hard for everybody to talk about process. Dancing with architecture. I think that's yeah, the no, expression. I, uh, okay, very good, very good. Uh, I always joke. I always joke that Hank, you know, has a reputation as an experimental, uh, cutting edge editor, literally cutting edge editor, and he's done all these, you know, uh, amazing, uh, you know, films that really push the limits with these great directors. But I always joke with Hank, as like, you know what? I think the mainstream has almost caught up with you. <laughs> like, like suddenly. Uh, Hank, it's 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 a little bit like it should scare Hank, but at the same time he should be excited. But but you're suddenly seeing Hank like cut these movies that are you know I mean that are pretty big movies, and then the Lakers show we did too is not some obscure little experimental thing off in a corner. And it was very fun to see the you know Max Borenstein and Rodney Barnes from that show see Hank's editing style and get as excited as I was, you know, when I first met Hank. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of like Lou Reed winning Grammys later in his career. I think that's, uh, I think that's the phase that Hank's at. I love it. I love How it. How does it work, Hank, though, with the improvised footage that you get in? Is it always the same? Like, I've, I've just often heard, you know, from those filmmakers I know that have done I, I'm talking like, cause I know, I know there's a script here, Adam. I'm talking about those that just do pure improvised films and they're working off of an outline and, and the editor is getting an assortment of material. And it's like, well, how do you match this? And what if the, the, the first take is not the same as the 13th take? How do you, can you give an example of just kind of, you know, assembling that together or, or, dealing with that type of challenge. And the, the first thing that's very important is that the script itself becomes the Bible, the guide. And if not necessarily a literal guide, certainly an, an emotional guide and a guide to the arc of where Adam is wanting to take the film. You know, so I'm, I'm given the freedom to go and just examine takes, examine performances and see what, what works the best, what's the most truthful way to convey an idea, to convey actually Adam's master idea. You know, and it's almost like the individual performances, although they're very important, they're kind of inconsequential to the, if, if you know, if, if you get really literal to the arc of what we're trying to put together. I mean, just on a practical level, what happens is Hank and our composer, Nick Bertel, come in very early in the process. I show them my rough draft of the script 
And what's cool is each of them start, you know, throwing stuff in the saucepan from their respected uh, corners of the uh, of the movie. And so a great example is Hank came up with this genius idea from the movie, which is really important element was he said, I want the natural world to be a character in the movie. And this is something he said to me before we shot one frame. And then when I come in and I see the big giant rough assembly that was like, you know, whatever, three hours, 10 minutes long, there was a lot of that in there and it was incredible. And then you kind of distill it down. Um, but as far as the raw improv goes, you know, our script supervisor is a big part of that too, uh, Kate Hardman. And she actually is an artist and she does drawings of each of the setups. And then she has an assistant. We have to always get her an assistant because of the improv. And when she goes home at night, she catalogs all the improv for Hank. So it's not too sprawly. And then also I always start with the scripted. So you have a base and then you get to watch it kind of come undone. And Hank, do you think that helps as far as how you imagine it? I, I feel like it does for me that I know the scripted's the base. And then as the takes go deeper, they get wilder and wilder. Yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't really use Kate's script notes because she also she also described cutting styles. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, again, the the script in our discussions are of utmost importance. You know, I couldn't I couldn't put the if I didn't have your script and I hadn't talked to you, I really wouldn't know how how to contextualize this movie. You know, so the script is all important. I mean, I love what Hank does too, because Hank, it is kind of true. Like you, you want Hank to feel like it's his movie. And while he's cutting it, it really is. Like he's making a version of the movie on his own. And I want him to take as many big leaps and choices because ultimately you're going to end up with discoveries that you would never have had if someone was just cutting it by the numbers. And so it's always funny to come in and see the movie because you can almost see Hank's attention span or what he's interested in when you see the cut. And, and you know, one of my favorite Hank Corwin moves, which I never experienced before, is where he just cuts right in the middle of a sentence or he just cuts out of a moment. And you could see Hank going, okay, we get it, we get it, let's move on. But it was so cool when I started test screening for audiences to see audiences connect with that. And you, and you realize like our attention span and the way we take in narratives is changing. And they really love that style in a very mainstream way. People really respond to it. There's always a couple people that are like, what's with that style, you know? But for the most part, it has such energy to it. And I really feel like with Don't Look Up, it, it really reached a kind of peak because it works so well with comedy. Uh, because comedy is built on surprise and the unexpected and zigs and zags. Um, so, yeah, I love seeing what you end up doing with that. That's always one of my favorite things. That's so cool. Uh, I, I, I found, you know, that it's the kiss of death when an audience gets ahead of the movie. You know, and comedy, I mean, this film, this film and the last films, Actually, the last the last two films have allowed me to, to sort of develop the style. It would be really something when we do something lyrical, if that ever happens in my lifetime, to to to, to change to change 
our, our just our cutting style, just to, to, to make it more of a wave instead of a chop. Hank, can you tell us more about moments that you discovered from the footage of Don't Look Up that you put in and it was a surprise to Adam and he and he said, I love that. Keep it in. Don't can you can you give us some examples? Uh, Adam, you might have you might help me here because I don't know necessarily what surprised you. Oh, I could give dozens of examples. I mean, I one of the moments I love is when uh, DiBiaschi and Mindy DiCaprio and Jen Lawrence go to New York City and they're going to go on that talk show and Hank just cut to the natural world and you saw waves crashing and you saw a hummingbird and you saw this beautiful shot of a lizard pulling its, uh, shedding its skin and it just in a million years would not have occurred to me to go to that there, but it, it did so many things. It reminded you, it brought all the stakes back to the movie. It's beautiful looking. I mean, one of the things Hank and I love playing around with are uh, <clears throat> tone shifts. You know, we just have this theory that the world we're living in now doesn't adhere to a genre as much as it used to. And that we're constantly shifting from being in a farcical comedy, being in a tragedy and a drama. And, and so that was a, a prime example of something that in a trillion years, I wouldn't have thought to go to that there. And it just felt instantly right. Um, and there are dozens of examples of that throughout the movie, the whole ending of the end of the world. I obviously had it scripted. I mean, there's, you know, the comments hitting, there's waves, the prayer, all that stuff was in the script. But the way that Hank built it out with the shots around the world, he realized we, we both realized this had to be a world event. You had to feel the planet. But I, I just don't know if there's anyone that could have cut that like that with that vision. And there's a great development between Hank and I that's happened now because Hank and, and I keep chasing this idea of what's the world, what's the feeling of the world. So we've started making our own stock footage, which has been really fun. So we use cell phone cameras, we use Super 8 video, and we started doing it a lot with Vice and we did it even more with this one. We had a camera crew down in Peru. We had stuff on the streets in Washington, DC. And our ultimate dream is you can't tell what the stock footage is and you can't tell what we've shot, which I think is starting to happen. I don't think people can tell. So um, yeah, that ending is a tour de force. I mean, if you wanna look at, if you're teaching Hank Corwin in, in a class, that ending will definitely be in, uh, in this uh, strange Hank Corwin class in upstate New York. That's where I picture the class being taught, Hank. You know, every time um, Adam flatters me, I'm, I'm always wondering whether he's being serious or not, or he's pulling my leg. <laughs> I am being serious. I can tell you that right I, now. I love it. I, I ended with a joke, so I didn't make you too uncomfortable. But the whole, the, the middle of the sandwich was all true. <laughs> so Adam you know the great thing about working with or so I hear with the streamers of course and, and, and networks such as HBO is the um, the bandwidth for creativity that they give their um, their content creators um, that said did you still put 
don't look up through a test audience. Um, because, and I know, I, 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 of course, it depends on the filmmaker, but I think what's key for a lot of comedy filmmakers is the setup and punch and knowing that an audience is going to react to it. Was that on your mind with this? Was it important to get this before a test audience so that you knew certain moments were working? And can you, can you guys talk about the takeaway of that? Yeah, I mean, don't you think we use test audiences kind of like if you're going to the bathroom at night and the lights aren't on, you kind of put your hand out to feel the wall. Like, and, and you know, with, with this movie, this movie was built to be a world movie. We wanted it to play for people. And, and you know, with each movie, you kind of make a decision about how much you're going to ride that energy line of the audience with Vice. It was less so. It was a more difficult movie, uh, a little more tragic, a little more, uh, uh, you know, uh, not quite as playful for stretches. With the big short, it was somewhere in between Vice and Don't Look Up. So with this movie, yeah, we, we screened quite a bit. Uh, and, and I think we did about five or six screenings trying to find that kind of blend. And we knew the movie was gonna be challenging because it didn't follow the rules, Sid Field rules of, of structure of screenplay. It obviously ends in a different genre than it began in. It doesn't follow the traditional three arc structure. Uh, the tone is gonna to shift. So, you know, the editing style, the use of cutaways, there's, there's unusual elements to the movie. So yeah, we, we definitely screened it. We time stuff. I mean, people would be surprised how exact we get with those cuts where we chop a line off. People would be very surprised as impressionistic as certain elements feel, how precise Hank is with the way he cuts it. But I, I really like screening for audiences. Ultimately, that's who you're making the movie for. You know, Anthony, I've never worked with a director who actually uses these test screenings not necessarily to tell him how to how to construct something, but just to how how Adam uses the energy of, a, of 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 an audience, how he really becomes one with their eyes and with their gut. Uh, it's it's really fascinating. Every other director I've worked with runs away from these things, and now I I I don't think I could work any other way. I, I love working with these audiences. We don't look at cards. I certainly don't look at cards. You know, I, I suspect Adam, Adam has to sometimes. I don't look at them a lot. Yeah, occasionally deep in the process where you have a couple conundrums you're trying to figure out, I'll start looking. Well, we can tell when something's working and when it's not. It's, you can tell. It's so it's elemental, Anthony, it's amazing. Yeah, you can tell, you don't need to hear scores. You don't need to look at cards. You sit in a crowd and you get it. It's amazing. And you know, with the pandemic, it was tricky, but thank God the vaccine came out and people were masked and it was totally safe. And then they did some remote screenings so we could go to different cities like Denver and Chicago. And that's really exciting. And cause you get a totally different perspective. Um, but yeah, I love it. These movies are made to engage audiences. These aren't these aren't in a box and made to be looked at from afar. They're, they're, they're definitely engaging the audience in a very active way. I, I think that's no secret. This is actually a populist movie, which is something I never thought it would be. I mean, people, 
well, obviously so many people have watched this thing, but, but so many people relate to, to some aspect of it. It's amazing. Adam, is Bad Blood is definitely the next feature? No, not necessarily. You know, Jen is about to have a baby. She may have another movie going. Uh, I have another movie idea I like. I would say it's between that other idea, which I haven't announced or anything, and Bad Blood. Um, in one way or another, we're going to make it. Uh, I, I'm just not sure of the exact time frame, or am I the screenwriter, not the director? I, I do feel like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're both kind of up in the air, and we have some other projects going, but I do have this other idea that keeps bugging me that kind of won't go away so we'll see i can totally see her as um elizabeth holmes i i could hear her i could see it and i'm just She'll dying be amazing to, yeah be amazing. dying to see that interpretation and it's it i will confess it's because of the announcement of your project that drew me into elizabeth holmes's story even more um and just the fascination you know, is she a tragic hero? Is she not? Is she, you know, there's a lot going on there. To there's explore. a ton going on there. And what I like about it, she really is a great character to reflect this moment we're living in where it seems like there's fraud and corruption everywhere you turn and everything is about, you know, uh, the cell and the promise. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of actual problem solving going on across our entire society. So I, I like her story because I, I, my heart breaks for her in some ways, and then it's, she's infuriating in other ways. So it's, which is kind of how everything feels now, but we'll see, we'll see. I, I, I've gotten in trouble before saying, oh yeah, that's definitely the next one. And then it's not, but, uh, but I love it. That's for sure. And as far as the other idea to TBD. TBD, the only thing I can say is you know, it, I feel like the last three movies we've done are collapse of uh, the climate, obviously allegory with the comet. And then I feel like the one before was collapse of America. And then I feel like the one before was collapse of our financial system. And, and I think there's something interesting about like, we've looked at these kind of heart attack moments for our, for the world, but like, I think there's something interesting about what what's causing the blockage and and that's big dirty money that has just flowed through every element of our government and society so i think i have an idea to kind of get to take a look at that in a way that could be kind of interesting but uh that's as much as i'll say collapse of u.s capital gates do you think we'll go there <laughs> that i'd love to see your uh I would love to see your version of Jan say, you know. There's something in the works on that as well. I, that, I think that announcement's coming out next week. You'll, you'll see, it's pretty cool. Um, there's almost part of me because it's so predictable now. It seems like we're just cruising right towards three years from now. There doesn't seem to really be anything in the way of a takeover and then maybe a dismantling of our democracy. So maybe we'll try and write a movie that just exactly predicts that so the movie can come out as the event is happening and play an actual time um, now our collapse is getting so predictable it's so obvious you can just see it coming that you almost could just go all right i'm going to try and i'm going to try and nail this and like oh i hit 80 percent of it because good lord man I, I don't mean to be flip about it it's very upsetting um 
But yeah, anyway, the world is so crazy right now and bumpy and herky-jerky. Uh, I, I feel like there's a thousand stories to be told. Adam McKay and Hank Corwin, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.